Well, I please uh, I'd ask you to stand uh, once again as we, uh, as we read God's word out of, of reverence for his word. I'm going to be reading, uh, the, the message is really going to be taken from, from all over this morning, but I, I want to f- read together uh, Romans 6, 1 to 14. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may, be ab- may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. This is the word of our Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray one more time together. Our gracious Lord and Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you and we praise you for the great blessing that we have of being able to remember your sacrifice for us, Lord Jesus. Your life, your death, your resurrection as we follow you in the waters of baptism. As we regularly remember you at the Lord's table. And Lord, we do pray that as we think about these things this morning, Lord, that you would undertake for us. Lord, we pray that you would work in our hearts. We pray that that you would cause us to understand and to obey your command to us. Lord, we ask that you would be blessed and glorified through our obedience. Lord, we thank you that you have given us these two ordinances as a means of grace. Lord, whereby we we preach to ourselves and, and all who are watching the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. Over the next few weeks, Joshua and I are going to be dealing with a few issues that are, are very important as they relate to, to what we do as a local church. And these things really define 
the local church. This morning, as I talked about with the children, I'm going to be dealing with baptism and the Lord's Supper. In the next few weeks, we're going to be talking about membership and church governance and church discipline. <coughs> In the near future, we're also going to be adding an adult Sunday school where, where we can really, at least initially, we can really further um, dive into these things and, and discuss them as, as a church family. What we're wanting to do here is, is really to, to beef up our understanding of what it means to be part of the local church. And we're planning on introducing a, a church covenant in the near future. And we've, we've talked a little bit about that already, but we'll be, be, be discussing this moving forward to, even at our next um, members meeting, at our annual general meeting. And this process of what we're engaging here is, is a process in which you are all invited to participate in. Now, there's practices here that, that we want to encourage and to develop, and, and really some things that, that haven't been taught explicitly from this pulpit for a long time. This morning, as we, we deal with these two issues of baptism and the Lord's Supper, I'm really only going to be able to, to scratch the surface, but what I really want to do is, is to be able to, to get us thinking and talking about these issues biblically. Now, faithful Christians may differ on some of the things that I'm, that I'm going to say, but, but what I'm going to be presenting is the position of this church. Now, that being said, we, we can have sweet fellowship with, with those who, who disagree with us on, on these issues. And if there's any questions or, or, or issues that arise as a result of anything that I, I say this morning or, or things that, that come up through this series, I would encourage you to, to, to go and to, to talk to Joshua or to myself and, to, and, and we, can, we, can, we can talk about these things together. But again, this morning, I'm going to be talking about these, these two ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. There are only two ordinances that the church has, only two. And you'd think, given the fact that there's only two of them, that we would get them right. But, but sadly, that, that's not the case. In fact, I, I hope and I pray that there's things, even in our, our own church, that are going to change and grow as a result of doing this study together. One of the movies that, that I like to watch with my family over, over the holidays is Home Alone. And you're, you're probably familiar with, with that story. A family uh, goes on a, on a holiday and, and somehow forgets their young son at home. Now, with, with five kids, I can see occasionally mixing up their names. I have problems with that with even just my two boys. But, but forgetting a child at home and going on a trip... And they don't do it once, they do it three times because they do it in both of the sequels as well. <laughs> now, you, you, you would think that at some point, child services would get involved and these, these parents would be charged with neglect. And, and I joke here, but, but I wonder if somebody is being neglectful when it comes to, to these, or somebody is, is ignoring the, these two ordinances, these just two ordinances, I wonder, are they being neglectful? And I have to say that I think that's often the case. And in fact, when it, when it comes to these, these two issues, I believe that baptism is really the, 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 the more neglected and, and misunderstood 
of, of the two, at least in our day. John MacArthur says that, that at the present time, there are probably more unbaptized Christians in the church than in the whole history of the church. And he, he says that anyone who, who claims to, to be a Christian, now this is, he's talking here about, about somebody, not just somebody who, uh, in this case, he's not, he's not really even just talking about, about believers' baptism, creedal baptism versus, versus infant baptism. He's saying people that haven't been baptized at all. He says that if somebody has is, is not been, been baptized, someone who disregards baptism, he said is either ignorant or proud or indifferent or defiant or unconverted at all. It's really one of those things. And it's part of my responsibility as a pastor to begin to correct these things and, and to be able to, to help people to understand from a biblical perspective just how important these things are. Now, I'm not saying, when I, when I talk about people being, being neglectful, I'm not talking about, about faithful theologians who, who dig into the word of God to try to understand these things and, and who come out on, on the other side. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about, about faithful theologians like, like, like um, John Owen or, or John Calvin or, or more recently R.C. Sproul and, and Sinclair Ferguson. I'm, I'm not talking about men like that. My, my son, John Owen, is named after a Pado baptist So we're not talking about that, but I'm talking about, about people who disregard or ignore this issue. It's most important. But as much as I, as I respect these men, as much as I respect men like, like Calvin and, and John Owen and Sproul and, and Ferguson, I don't believe that their position when it comes to baptism is correct. I think they got it wrong there. And I think one, of the, the, I think what, one thing we need to realize, especially when it comes to men like, like Calvin and Owen, is we, we need to understand the time at which they were writing. They were writing at a time when, when the Reformation was brand new, especially with Calvin. And, and so they, they made some, some really strong and, and, and vital and, and really central moves away from Roman Catholicism. But there were some ways that, that, that I, I believe that there was still, to a, to a certain extent at least, still a, um, men of their age, and I think of, of an example when it, when it comes to, to Martin Luther and the Lord's Supper. Now, if you're familiar with, with the different views on, on the Lord's Supper, what, what, what Luther and the other reformers were vehemently opposed to was the, the heresy of transubstantiation. That, that when, pe- when the, the priest conducts the mass, that somehow the, the bread and the, the wine were, were somehow mysteriously but literally converted into the, the body and blood of Jesus, that, that, that somehow those, those two elements were somehow changed and became Jesus Christ. And so, so these men rightfully rejected that. 
But when it came to, to Martin Luther, he had kind of a, rather than, than going all the way, he kind of had a middle road approach. That he, it was, it's termed consubstantiation, that somehow the, the body and blood of Jesus is present with the, the emblems. Now we're going to talk a lot more about, about, what, about what the Lord's Supper really means in a little bit, but, but what I want you to understand with this illustration is that, that men like, like Luther is a great man of God was still a man of his times. And that the Reformation wasn't yet finished. We, what we need to understand is we can, we can look at, at, at men like Luther or, or Calvin and, 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 and learn so much from them. You know how much I love church history. You know that most of my favorite theologians are dead. But church history or, or tradition are not the authority. God's word is the authority. And so what we need to, to continually do is to examine and re-examine our practice in light of God's word, coming back to God's word. One of the, the key mottos of the Reformation was, was semper reformanda, which is, means always reforming. So what they're saying is the, the church is reformed, but always reforming. And by this, they meant that the church needs to continue to reject what is unbiblical and, and, what, and to add what's been missing or to restore what's been lost or rejecting what has been wrongly added and to continually examine our conduct. And so that's what we're doing here when we, when we examine these things together. We're, we're reformed, but we're always reforming. We're continuing to examine and re-examine our practice and our beliefs to see whether they truly line up with the word of God. So with that, let's, let's dig into these, these two vitally important issues of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And, and I pray that the Lord would help us to understand and to obey God's word in this. Now, I'm going to read our, our church's statement of faith. But again, our, our church's statement of faith is not our ultimate authority. God's word is the ultimate authority, but, but I believe our church's statement of faith is an accurate reflection of the ultimate authority of what is taught in God's word. So, so Article 12 of our statement of faith, of baptism and the Lord's Supper. We believe that Christian baptism is the immersion in water of a believer into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that is, it is the direct command of Christ that it shows forth the believer's union with the crucified, buried, and risen Christ and his death to sin and resurrection to a new life, that it is a condition of church membership and according to the scriptural order, baptism should precede the observance of the Lord's Supper in which members of the church by the use of bread and wine after solemn self-examination are to commemorate together the death of Christ. Now we're going to look at, at baptism first because baptism really marks the beginning of our visible identification with Christ. If you please, um, hopefully you still have your finger there, uh, turn your Bibles to, to Romans uh, chapter 6. So we'll read again verses 3 and 4. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? 
We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. And those two verses really summarize that that whole section. Now, this passage here, as you can see, is not dealing specifically with water baptism. You need to understand that. It's not dealing specifically with water baptism, but it deals with what water baptism represents the spiritual reality of our union with Christ and his life and his death and his resurrection. That's what this passage is about. It's about our union with Christ. The 1689 Baptist Confession speaks of baptism as a sign of his fellowship, of the believer's fellowship with him in his death and resurrection, of his being engrafted into him, of remission of sins, and of giving up into God through Jesus Christ to live and walk in newness of life. So, so again, that, that's, a, that's the 1689 Baptist Confession. It was, it was this is a, the, a, the final of a series of, of Baptist Confessions from that era. Um, again, th- this is not authoritative, but it's very, very helpful to understand what the scriptures teach on this issue. And you can see that that is a, is a clear reflection that's pulled directly out of Romans chapter six. One thing we need to be very, very clear on is that baptism does not save you. Baptism does not save you. It is a picture. It is a symbol of the spiritual reality of the fact that you have been united with Christ and are therefore saved. It's a picture that you have turned away from your sin and you have put your faith in the sinless life, atoning death, and justifying resurrection of Jesus Christ. Again, it's a picture that you've been united with him in his his death and his resurrection from verse five. The old self is crucified with Christ to free you from slavery to sin, verses six and seven. It's a picture that you have been raised with Christ and now live with him, verses seven and eight. It's a picture that you have died to sin, verse 11, and that you've been brought to life, verse 13. And now that you must not present ourselves as, sorry, not letting sin reign in your, in your mortal body, for sin has no dominion over you. Verse 14, that's what baptism represents. That's what baptism represents. And, and so, so given what is, what is seen and what is taught here in this passage, you can see why baptism involves Immersion. Right, of the fact of, of going under the water and coming up out of the water, that is a picture of your union with Christ in his life, his death, and his resurrection. Now, sprinkling and pouring simply don't communicate that. They, they, they don't communicate dying and being raised again. But that's not the only reason why credo-baptists baptize they baptize because the word that, that we see in our Bibles, baptize, means, means to immerse. It, it, it means, it's, well, it literally means to, to dip. It originally um, came from, um, from a ship that was being sunk or a man who drowned. Okay, it's, it's immersion under the water and, and every, in, in all of the literature, okay, in, in all of the Greek literature, the word baptize means immerse. 
The, the Greek, the, the word that we have there in our Bible, it's, it's a transliteration. It's an English version of the Greek word, baptiz, baptisto, baptizo, rather. And in all of the, the New Testament, in, in, and also in, in the Septuagint, which is the, the Greek version of the Old Testament, it, it means the same thing. It means to, to dip or to immerse. Now, there is one verse in, uh, in the Septuagint, in, in Leviticus 14.6, that I've heard a, a paedo-baptist say that it, it means, uh, that it means sprinkle, but, but Leviticus 14.6 um, is speaking of, of a cleansing ritual for a leper where, where one bird was killed and the other bird, and the, the living bird was then dipped in that, in that bird's blood. And the word there is, it actually means dipped. And, and it, it can't mean sprinkle because in the very next verse, there's another Greek word that means sprinkle. Okay, so, so to baptize means to dip. And I, I really do actually, I don't know what, what went on in the, uh, in the translators' minds when they when they. they the, the English versions of the Bible, but I wish they'd actually use the word dip or immerse. But the, the idea here is that, is, that, is that Christians are immersed. They're unified with Christ. Which brings me to the next issue, that, that baptism is the immersion of a believer. In Scripture, Baptism in Jesus Christ always follows repentance and faith. Now, again, there is one exception, the baptism of John, which is a, a baptism of repentance, but it's a different baptism to the baptism of Jesus. Those who had only been baptized in John were, were later baptized in, in Jesus. You can see that in Acts 19, 3 and 4. You can also see this in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Go, there, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Well, well who are the them that are being baptized? They're those who have been made disciples. And they are also the same ones who are taught to observe all that Christ commanded Infants aren't disciples. Infants can't be taught to obey Christ's commands. We also see this in, in the, the version of the, um, of the Great Commission um, in, uh, in Mark 16. 16, again, this is a disputed text, but, um, but whoever believes in him and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Notice there that it's, it's, it's not whoever... Um, it's not whoever is, is not baptized will be saved, will not, sorry, will be condemned, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. So baptism does not save you. It is only those who do not believe who are condemned, not those who are not baptized. Now you'll see in the, in the New Testament that there, there are four what are called household baptisms. Four of them in, in three different places in Scripture, in, in Acts 10, Acts 16, um, and also in 1 Corinthians. They're sometimes used to, to justify infant baptism. But not one of those examples ever mentions babies. Not, not one of them. You have to read into the text to conclude that it's speaking of babies. So there, are no, there is no direct teaching or command in Scripture for babies to be baptized. And even many, in fact, all um, notable 
Paedobaptists that, that I know of will, would, would agree that there's no direct teaching commanding baptism, that, that you have to infer it from other passages. We also see that it's, it's a direct command of Christ. That baptism is a direct command of Christ. You can see that in, in Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Again, go, there, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is a direct command of Christ. And notice there that the, the, tri, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is directly mentioned there. Now, I, I know that it's, it's, I've discussed my baptism um, story here, here before, but, but I think it would be helpful for me to explain it again. You know, I, I became a Christian at the age of 23, and, and, um, but it was, it was 17 years before I finally got baptized. So doing the math, I guess that was, I was 40 when I finally got baptized. Very humbling. And it, what had happened was I, I realized that in, in a membership, my membership interview at my church that I really had never been baptized. I thought I'd been baptized, but I'd never been truly baptized. I'd been sprinkled once, and I'd been dunked twice, but I'd never actually been baptized. And the, the issue was, well, the, the, so sprinkled once in the, in the United Church as a, as a baby. And then not long after I got saved, I was, was going to a, a, a church that was a, a oneness Pentecostal church. You might be familiar with that term, and it's actually a cult. Um, it's labeled a cult even by other Pentecostal groups. And so it was a baptism in the name of Jesus only. They, they don't believe in the Trinity. They only believe, they believe that Jesus is the Father and that the Spirit's just a, just a power. It's, 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 it's a cult. And I don't must have had an affinity for cults because later on I ended up in another cult. It was very works-based. And in, in the course of the interview, the, the, my membership interview, the, the, the pastor said, well, um, you've been baptized, right? And I said, well, that's, you know, that's a good question. And at God's providence, I was going to a seminary where a number of the professors had written books on baptism, and so I was able to, to, to talk to them about, about the issue. And I said, well, look, I was, I was Trinitarian. I wasn't, I wasn't ever a, a, into this whole oneness thing. And, and, and he said, well, the issue is, is it really a church? Is it really a church? I said, well, if... And he said to me that if, uh, if say, for example, you, were, um, you, you had, had been, been dunked in a, in a Mormon context, even if you didn't believe Mormon doctrine, would that be a real baptism? No, because this is not, it's not a real church. Baptism, as we talked about with the kids, baptism and the Lord's Supper are church ordinances. You can only do them as part of the church. So again, 17 years after being saved, I finally got baptized. I actually wrote the man who had baptized me this morning. He's now ministering in New Zealand and just said I was thinking of him and wondering how he's doing. But several times in the book of Acts, we see people baptized in the name of Jesus. And so that's one of the passages that some of these oneness Pentecostals will use. They'll say, well, see, Jesus is the name, so we're baptized only in the name of Jesus. What they're failing to understand is, is, is that 
the, the words in the name of Jesus is not speaking of a formula. It means in the authority of. And so you, you see in the New Testament, you see people healed in the name of Jesus in, in Acts 3 and uh, 6 and 4.10. Um, you, you see people assembled in the name of Jesus in 1 Corinthians 5.4. You see people justified in the name of Jesus, uh, 1 Corinthians 6.11. You see people praying in the name of Jesus in Ephesians 5.20 and so on. And, so, and the focus on that there is, is not pronouncing the name of Jesus, but the authority that is vested in Jesus. So when the scriptures speak of somebody being baptized in the name of Jesus, it means that they are baptized by the authority of Jesus Christ. That's, that's what that means. Next, in referring here to our, our church statement of faith, baptism is a condition of church membership. It's, it's a requirement of our fellowship that those who are welcomed into membership be immersed as believers. But now we have people here in our church family who are beloved parts of our church family. We, we love them in Christ. Regardless of, of their position on this, they, they are our brothers and sisters in Christ. But according to our, our own statement of faith, we, we, can't, we can't welcome them as, as members of the church. Now, there, there were a few Baptist churches that recently wanted to be able to welcome into membership those who had, had, had water poured on them. Now, as believers, but they'd had water poured on them, and, and they wanted to be able to welcome these people into, um, into, to, into membership. But, but the, the, the fellowship statement of faith and constitution were, have actually been upheld at both the regional and national conventions earlier this year. And so that, that motion was defeated and they, they affirmed what our statement of faith says, that it is a condition of church membership. The statement of faith also says that it is a, a church ordinance. When we baptize someone, what we're saying is we're saying, I believe this person is a believer in Jesus Christ. That's, that's why we are, are credo Baptists. It's, it's, credo means faith, where we believe that, that, bapt, that faith is a requirement for baptism. And so when, when, a church, when a church baptizes somebody, there's really a, a commitment, not just on, on the part of the person who's being baptized, but it's also a condition on the part of the church that there's going to be a mutual accountability and those things are, are affirmed and formalized in, in church membership. There's a mutual accountability. And again, when it, when it comes to, to, to those who have a different view of baptism who are part of our church family, we still have the, that mutual accountability relationship, but it's not, it's not formally ratified in, in, a, in a church membership or, or as we'll be talking about in a, in a church covenant. And so when it, when, it comes to, when it comes to baptism, it's to be performed by an elder, one who has, has been given authority by the church to be able to perform that duty. It's not to be done on a, on a missions trip. And, and I, I led a missions trip a number of years ago where, where uh, one of the members of, of our team was actually was baptized in, in a river in Papua New Guinea. And, and um, as I understand that, I didn't have authority. To, I wasn't the one who did the baptism. It was a church, but it wasn't his church family. And it wasn't a matter of, these weren't people who knew him and, and who, there was a, that mutual accountability. And, and, and this man is, is now, to my knowledge, has walked away from the faith. And I'm not blaming that specifically on his baptism. 
but that mutual accountability w- was missing. Now, there is one exception in Scripture where, where you have somebody who is, is baptized apart from the context of a, of a local church. It's, it's Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch in, in Acts chapter 8. But this, this was really a unique situation in the, in the life of the church. This was, was really, a, the, the church was just so um, brand new. And, and we need to realize that the narratives that are there in Scripture are, are not necessarily normative. They're not necessarily there for, for ongoing practice. I just want to zero in for a moment here, though, on this term ordinances. And you notice here that our statement of faith uses the term ordinance rather than sacrament when referring to baptism and the Lord's Supper. And that's, that's intentional. You'll see also, if you look at the 1689, it, it says ordinances, but if you look at the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is very similar, it uses the term sacrament. And, and the, the, the key difference um, is an ordinance rep- is a symbolic representation of the, the ministry of Christ and has been ordained by Christ, whereas a sacrament um, also involves the idea not just of it being a, a symbol or a sign, but, but also of it being a seal. And their focus is on the fact that it is a means of grace whereby it's, it's, they're focusing on the element of, of God being the one who's working. And I really do appreciate actually that, that element of it because it, it's, it's when, we, when we engage in baptism or the Lord's Supper, it's, it's not merely a memorial. There's, there's something more going on. There's something spiritual that goes on when, when someone is baptized or, or when we receive the Lord's Supper together. I really believe that it, it is a, a means of grace. So there's kind of, there's kind of, a, of a tension there, but... But I think the, the term sacraments um, often calls to, to people's minds the ideas of Roman Catholic trappings like, like the Mass and, um, and, um, um, and last rites, which are, which are meant not just to confer grace, but to actually be salvific. They're, they're works that are required in the Roman Catholic Church for salvation. And so, so the, the, we want to distance ourselves from, from those, not, not from the aspect of the idea we're being a, a, of God working, but from those salvific elements, because again, it does not save. It's, it's, a, it's a symbol or a, a picture, that's a ta- public testimony that this person is trusting in Christ and has been forgiven by sin. It's, it's also a testimony of the church as well. But God is indeed working, I believe, when, in, a, in a special way. When we engage in baptism or, or today when we receive the Lord's Supper together. It, it really is, I believe, a, a means of grace. And um, one of the ways that, that baptism is there as a means of grace is by providing assurance of salvation. By providing assurance of salvation. And that's really missing from the Pado baptist formula. 1 Peter 3.21, baptism then which corresponds to this now saves you not as, a remo- remo- sorry, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So an infant can't look back on, on a previous baptism and, and, and have it help them with their assurance of salvation. Only a, a believer who's been baptized can, can actually lay hold of that. Well, with that, then, that, that, let's go to the, to the next topic, and I'll have to deal this with a little more quickly, but that of the Lord's Supper. That of the Lord's Supper. And, and again, we're going to be celebrating this here in, in a few minutes, but if you please turn your Bible to, to Matthew 26, verses 26 to 29. 
I trust these are very familiar words to you. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. He took a cup and when he'd given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So that's the, 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 one of the passages that shows the introduction of the practice of the Lord's Supper. Now again, drawing from our statement of faith, it, it's, I actually really like the way that, that it phrases it here. It says that baptism should precede the Lord's Supper. That it should precede the Lord's Supper. I believe that is the, the normal way that it's done. Believers are, are, are baptized and then participate in the Lord's Supper. But, but it doesn't say must. It doesn't say must. And, and I think that's important here because, because I do not believe that, that when a, a paedo baptist receives the Lord's Supper that he is eating or drinking in an unworthy manner. If Sinclair Ferguson was to visit our church, I wouldn't say, well, I would love to have Sinclair Ferguson preach, but I wouldn't say, well, so, sorry, Dr. Ferguson, you can preach, but you can't, receive the, you can't receive the Lord's Supper here. I would feel very uncomfortable in making a, any kind of a statement like that. And so with that then, that, that I'd like to describe briefly what, what we believe when it comes to the Lord's table. The, the two probably most common terms that are used are, are open and closed communion. Open and closed communion. And so by, by open communion, essentially means that, that any professing Christian can receive the Lord's Supper. But at the other end of the, of the, of the, of the other extreme, you have closed communion, which means only members of a particular church so only members of that particular church can receive the Lord's Supper. And, and I think in some cases that it could actually come with a letter from another church that would enable them to be able to do it. Okay, so it's open and closed communion. But, but what we believe in practice here is, is probably best referred to as close communion. That you need to be a Christian walking in, in obedience but you don't necessarily have to be a member of this church. And so we, we fence the table. We warn people that you need to examine yourself and you need to make sure that, that you are walking in, in repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. But we, we to, to a large extent, we leave it up to, to people's consciences. And that doesn't mean that there would, there, there would ever be a, be a time when, in fact, we'll talk about church discipline in, in a couple of weeks when we'll tell people, we do not believe that you should be receiving the Lord's Supper. Okay, but that's still under, under what we understand as close communion. So when it comes to those who are who are present with us, part of our church family, we, we welcome them to, to join us around the Lord's table. I, yes, I, I encourage them to be baptized. And I, and I, and I hope and, and pray that we'll have more conversations around these issues. But we need to understand that, 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 that they are welcome. You're welcome at this table. But with that, there's something that I really do want to, uh, to give as, as a caveat here, that, that this is not for children. That, that when we receive the, the Lord's Supper, 
This, this is not for children, that the children let the, the cup pass by. Now, if there's a, you know, I believe that a child can be, um, at, at a relatively young age, can really understand the gospel and, and be saved and, and baptized, and only at that point would they be welcome to receive the Lord's Supper. That's what I mean when I say that. It's, this is for, for those who, 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 are, who are baptized Christians, not just for, for the children of believers, now, there's one statement in our, in our statement of faith that I, Josh and I need to do a little bit more, more digging on, where it says, it says members of the church. We have had some, um, some conversation at a previous members' meeting about this, but again, this is tied to the, the open versus closed communion, and, um, and I believe when it, when it uses that term here, it's usually taken in the broad sense of the word member. So it, in broadly speaking, we're all members of the body of Christ, I'm, 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 I don't believe that it is, it is our understanding in the, in the fellowship, or it's certainly not our understanding here. This is only for members of this local church. Okay, so, so it's, it's for broadly members of the church, but we'll be having more discussion about that. Next, it says, by the use of, of bread and wine. Now, we like to use here unleavened bread. I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with using bread with yeast in it, but, but we like to use, use unleavened bread because of, of what, what um, yeast often represents in the scriptures. It often represents sin, and, and so we, just, we like to use unleavened bread. And currently, um, we, use, we use grape juice. Now, I know that, that, uh, that some churches do avoid the use of wine so as, as not to uh, create a stumbling block for, for uh, former alcoholics and, and, and because, they, um, because there's, there's people whose consciences won't, won't allow them to be able to, to drink even a little bit of wine. Um, and, and I understand that. Some churches give, give both options and I do see merit in that. But again, this is something that, that we'll be continuing to discuss. It also includes solemn self-examination. 1 Corinthians 11, 28 to 31, that we're told to, to examine ourselves. Let's, let's actually go there and, and read that. Uh, 1 Corinthians 11, uh, verses 28 to 31. Let a person examine himself, then so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For if anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself, that is why many of you die, are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves, truly we would not be judged but when we were judged, oh, sorry, I'll stop there. So it's, it's a warning to, to examine yourself. This is a, a great opportunity when you receive the Lord's Supper to, to, to examine the, the, the time since you've last received the Lord's Supper and to, to, to examine your heart before the Lord and, and seek him. Say, Lord, is there something I, I need to repent of? Am I, is there something I need to ask forgiveness uh, for, for, from you or from my brother or sister in Christ? It's an excellent opportunity for you to be able to do that. And to, to, to seek in your heart to say, I'm going to make that right. And to, to, until you're willing to do that, to let that cup and that, and that bread pass by. And by doing this, we are commemorating together the death of Christ. And again, from the 1689, this, in this ordinance, Christ is not offered up to his father, nor any real sacrifice made at all for remission of sin of the quick or dead, but only a memorial of that one offering up of himself by the, upon the cross once for all, and a spiritual oblation of all possible praise unto God for the same. So what they're doing there is drawing a distinction between, between Christian receiving of the Lord's Supper and the Roman Catholic Mass. 
They want to make a sharp distinction. And notice it's saying it's, it's also a picture. Like, like baptism is a picture of, of our union with Christ, this is, a, is a, a picture as the wine represents the blood and as the bread represents his body. And so all of your senses are involved when you receive the Lord's Supper, your, your sight and your taste and your smell. And, and this is, again, meant to be a means of grace, a, a way that, that God reminds you of the grace that you've received in Christ. But it's, it's not just a memorial. It's not just a, a looking backwards. It's also a looking ahead that, that we drink of the, Jesus promised that he wouldn't drink again of the fruit of that vine until that day when he drinks it new with you in his Father's kingdom. So it's a, it's a looking forward to Christ's return. So it's a, it's a looking back to what he's done and a looking forward to what he will do. But again, this is also more than a mere memorial in that it is also a means of grace. It does nothing for our justification, but God again is at work as we receive this ordinance. Again from the 1689. where they speak of it as a confirmation of the faith of believers and all the benefits thereof for their spiritual nourishment. So they regard it as as that little bit of of bread and that that little um, cup of of juices is not ever going to nourish your body, but it's meant to, to nourish your spirit. And when we do this, we, we, we don't want to just, it, it doesn't end there. It doesn't end there. We continue with a, a table fellowship together. And we're gonna, we, as we do when we receive the Lord's Supper, we have a fellowship meal together, which is really meant to be a continuation of what we began here at, at this table. Celebration of, of what God has done for us in Christ. And the idea there is it's not just, sometimes when you're in this kind of a format, when, when everybody's sitting in pews, you're kind of looking at the back of the head in front of you, and, and it could be just a private affair. It could just be between you and God. But it's never meant to be that, just you and God. It's meant to be us together and God. So even as, as we take this Lord's Supper in a few minutes, I would encourage you, um, as we go to, to eat and drink together, just look around. And your brothers and sisters for whom Christ died and celebrate what God has done, not just for you, but for them. And then may, may that, then that, that love and appreciation for God and for them, may that then continue into our table fellowship and may our, our conversation be, be saturated with the things of Christ and the celebration for what he has done. I, I would encourage you to, to sit with somebody today that, that you don't normally sit with after, after church. To sit with somebody who, who you've never actually um, had, had a really deep conversation with. And I know that we do move around a little bit, but I'd love to, to mix things up a little bit. And if you'd ask, ask them. Ask the other people around your table. Tell me about how you came to Jesus. I, I, I want to love Jesus more because of what he's done for you. I want to celebrate Christ's life and death and, and, and resurrection for you. And what that does, it becomes a means of grace, not, not just, again, to, for us individually to grow in Christ, but for us together to grow in Christ. And, and I really believe that this is, this is one of the main reasons why, why we've been given this, to, to celebrate what we have as a church together. So I'm going to pray now at the, at the close of the sermon, and then we're going, we're going to, again, we're going to continue our worship as we receive these, these emblems together. And, and I just really ask you, by God's grace, to really think about these things to, in a, in a deeper, deeper way, maybe in a way you've not really thought about. 
and to ask the Lord to, to impress these things on your heart. Let's pray together.